Shit. You have okay. it, you have it. I have it. Okay. Everything funny we said, we got to say it all over again. <laughs> uh, fuck. Welcome to Pod Me Us. Um, where we are now recording. Where we totally have our shit together. Welcome to Pod Me Us, examining the crisis of modern neoliberal capitalism from a socialist perspective. As we transition towards a primarily podcast-based economy, um, we're here with Mike Booth. He was, what was your title again, Mike? I was the deputy canvas manager in Reno, Nevada. Deputy canvas manager in Reno, Nevada. Really a high point of the campaign in Nevada. Here, as always, with uh, David Mizuki, activist and freelance journalist. I'm John Miles. Fuck. It's like a solid <laughs> eight minutes. You gonna edit minutes. that out? Yeah. Just, I usually keep our fucks in there. I don't know. Nice, nice. But yeah, we're cool like that. Irreverence plays well with the youth. We say the fuck word. We say the shit word. We say all that. Yeah, man. <laughs> you guys are on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mike Booth, Canvas Manager, Reno, Nevada. We'll get more into the Bernie stuff later, but that's where me and Mike know each other, was working on the campaign in Nevada. And we were just talking about the... Well, we were talking about the role of MSNBC in the primary there. And so now that we're actually recording, could you relate that story about the person who was your host there? Yeah, it'll be even better the second time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the topic of MSNBC and its influence over... Typical center-left, moderate liberals, they they do. They trust everything MSNBC reports to them, and they tend to not second-guess the infographs that they put up on the screen. And I was staying with this really nice couple in Reno for my stay there, and they were pretty wealthy as well. And when I first got there, they showed me my room, and they showed me my TV that I was going to be able to use. And she turned it on, and she said, of course, we have it on MSNBC for you. And I said, oh, thank you very much. I won't be watching this, <laughs> but I appreciate it. I ended up having a lot of lengthy conversations with her specifically because she was a Warren supporter. She was a Buttigieg supporter. Wow, so they were hosting you even though you, they weren't into yeah. Bernie the yeah. candidate, huh? When I got there, I, apparently some... Joe Biden's staffer had just left. And at one point I had a couple Warren people that I had to interact with at their house. And, uh, sorry, you know, they were very, they were very vote. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. It was very, you know, vote blue, no matter who in the house, but obviously Bernie's not at the top of that list for right. those people. But, um, you know, they were great. They were great hosts, very nice, very friendly, very welcoming. But I had a lot of conversations with the wife about, MSNBC's coverage because I would stand there and watch it with her once in a while when I came home from work and they had that graphic up there where they had Bernie Sanders by himself up against for whatever reason they had him up against three moderates showing that of course Bernie Sanders could not defeat three moderates at the same time because they would basically just barely beat him the three of them combined I believe it was Biden Buttigieg and who would it be? I guess Klobuchar. So, you know, it was basically like I had to explain to her. I said, you got to think about this because it would not be very hard to just put Elizabeth Warren up on the screen next to Bernie and uh, compare them to any single moderate. And of course, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren would have a higher share of votes than any individual moderate. Right. I mean, that was pretty obvious response mm -hmm. for me. But she honestly had never thought about that ever. And she told me that she was a statistics major. 
And she was actually blown away when I brought that point up that, of course, you put two progressives against one moderate, they're going to do better than that one moderate. And it was like Mm -hmm. at that moment, I really realized that no matter how smart you are, because she was a very smart lady, incredibly smart. If you trust the outlet you're watching, you are never Mm -hmm. once going to second guess what they put on the screen, no matter how ridiculous uh, the framing is. People just, yeah, passively accept this stuff. And it was really just... I mean, whatever cynical narrative they could come up with at the time to convince people that Bernie was unelectable or that he couldn't win, that he couldn't win the primary, that he couldn't win the general and that the sky was going to fall if he did at any rate. Yeah. And people just like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I find that probably so much of that has to do with just spectacle, with just the trappings of sleek graphics going on the screen and uh, and these perfectly pristine sets and people who talk really well straight out of central casting. They seem very authoritative. Yeah, it all combines to have an effect that most people would deny is acting on them, but totally does. And I think that's part of why why first Fox News and then eventually even now OAN has as much cachet as it is because that's the good stuff on OAN. Oh, yeah. That, that's like the black tar heroine of, of right-wing conservatives. <laughs> Fox News are just a bunch of libtards. Can't even yeah, watch and like at OAN, now, now that the cost of production has gone down, you know, everything's digital, everything's that much easier to do. OAN doesn't even have to even invest as much as the rest of them to sort of have the same trappings, the same graphics, clean graphics, nice picture people dressed up nice who can, I guess, talk like people who don't know any better see that. And it's just as convincing because of those very superficial aspects, I think. It's a shame what they do to our impressionable seniors, you know. Production value goes a long way. It goes a long way. There's all this stuff I used to think only applied to the Republicans. But, you know, as soon as Bernie comes along, you just you see how the Democrats are just as bad in so many ways, just like from the fact that MSNBC is just used as a blatant propaganda tool for the Democratic Party to I mean, the fact that you had all these grifters really running for the Democratic nomination who were just eager to sell a book afterwards or just promote their own brand. We had this clown car Democratic primary with like 30 people in it, which just like these Republican primaries that we'd had. People who had no business being up there who anyone barely even remembers. That relationship, Mike, that you were talking about with your host in in Nevada, I've had a similar thing happening over the last few years with my own mom because she has been and still is a very devoted CNN viewer. She thinks uh, I have an interesting perspective on this stuff that like she she doesn't think I'm crazy for believing what I believe. She hears it out and everything, you know, as the primary was ramping up and she was following political coverage and stuff. And so was I. But from totally different sources, she was really taken aback by things that I would say that she's like, I never heard anyone say that thing or mention that event, that thing or look at it with that way. And this was stuff right. that I was reading that was relating back to her. Like even just now, she was talking, even, even recently, just now, she was talking to me about how there's a lot of blame going around to progressives, right? For the lack of gains in the House and in the Senate. Yeah. And I, I brought up to her what's going around in progressive circles right now, that everyone who supported the Green New Deal kept their seat and 99% who supported Medicare for all kept their seat or vice versa. I, might have I think it's vice versa, versa, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I brought that up to her and it was like another galaxy brain moment for her. She's like, oh, whoa, like because that's just never brought up. It just doesn't exist on CNN. 
And no, because it, they just lie. I mean, they literally just lie on TV. And maybe there's an answer to right. Maybe what someone might bring that up on CNN and they'd go back and forth or whatever. But it would be in the conversation. And mm -hmm. like she just doesn't even get to hear that. Yeah. 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 Medicare for all was a really tough one with my host because the wife had formerly worked in the health insurance industry. And like I said, she was a Buttigieg Warren supporter and her entire neighborhood was a very nice neighborhood and the caucus she told me about the caucus and bernie ended up coming in like fifth place or something for that neighborhood but it took me probably four or five hour long conversations with her to just give her a decent perspective on bernie sanders and just to correct all of the things she had heard from msnbc and cnn and i did eventually get her to support bernie in the caucus which was like Nice. The biggest win of my time there. Well, so that done, was incredible. Lad. Yeah, yeah. It made me feel really good. But it took a long time. It took a really long time. It was tough. It was tough. It's uh, It can be done. You have these face-to-face -face conversations with people and it can take a while. But we'll come back around to Bernie towards the end. But we'll touch on this most recent election we've had. Um, yeah, looking like Biden won. Probably barring, I don't know, more like... Uh, caravans of like Trumpers running people off the road and I don't know, gradually taking territory and, and carrying out the dumbest coup possible. But they seem yeah. incapable. They seem incapable of feeling foolish. Part of this is scary because like, I think a lot of people would turn around at one point just thinking like, okay, yeah, damn, like I can't believe like I was such a schmuck to follow this stuff. And I think the, the, the sort of machista pride that brought them into the movement. I'm thinking of a prototypical Trumpist who is probably uh, male. I, I think those kinds of people, for that same reason, like can't let it go because they'd look like a fool. I think that's definitely part of it. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, this whole coup that everybody's talking about has been very unimpressive for me. I haven't really seen a lot happen. I've seen some crowds, obviously, at the polling locations on. Uh, the few days after election day, obviously they got a little bit rowdy to stop the count chance, the count the vote chance. Like that was a little bit crazy. But like beyond that, I haven't seen too much in the following days. I have a buddy in Orange County who does a lot of good work and he was outside the registrar. And there was maybe 50 of those types of Trump supporters with the back the blue shirts and the pickup trucks and all that stuff. And they basically just yelled at a bunch of kids for no reason and just kind of said like, fuck Biden, we're going to come take this election and you're not going to do anything about it. But like at the end of the day, they were just standing in the parking lot. They weren't really doing anything. Well, at some point, it's like you got to get back home and watch Hannity. Um, yeah, these people are not going to they're not going to abandon their creature comforts for too long. To like, no, not at all. Like, to like do anything, I think. I agree with you guys that they're lacking. I, I agree that the sentiment on the part of the people sort of acting on their own has tamped down. But I still worry that that if a kind of signal comes from on high, they'll take it in stride and get right back out there. And I think there's a lot of like Trump, like we've already seen that statement from, uh, what's his face? Mike Pompeo. Yeah, that fucking, yeah. Mike Pompeo. Uh, <laughs> I can use that word. 
No. Uh, uh, <laughs> Mike Pompeo basically saying that he's ready for a second uh, Trump term. Uh, yeah, and, no, and I got to say, though, I got to say, I watched that full video. And as much as everybody's been showing that clip, in full context, if you listen to everything he says afterwards, like, I think it was just like a really bad joke. You know, Pompeo's been in other transition teams. Like, he's been a part of this whole process before. I'm almost positive he's got gigs lined up ahead of him right now. I don't think he's going to do anything to jeopardize that. I mean, that clip, if you take it by itself, of course, that's going to look pretty scary. But, you know, after that little line right there, he goes on to explain a bunch of stuff that you would expect him to explain. Of course, though, if Trump were to give a signal out to his core supporters, they would be out in the streets doing whatever they asked him to. I do believe that wholeheartedly. I mean, they have been waiting. They have been waiting for a signal. So look, for me, it's three things. It's Pompeo first, which, okay, maybe I'm misreading it as his failed attempt at levity. But then you have William Barr who to me has always been almost, you know, a Cheney like figure, the guy who wants to be behind the figurehead. And for sure. he's already shown his penchant for using aggressive police tactics, like using federal bodies as riot police, basically, and dispersing mm-hmm. peaceful protesters and stuff. And he's definitely said he's on board and that guy doesn't have a fucking funny bone in his body. So I, I, I doubt he's That's joking. true. And also uh, the Pentagon, Donald Trump recently just changed a bunch of leadership positions at the Pentagon, which everyone's been talking about how, I mean, one of the thing, one, one of the things that people have been talking about as a, as something that might prevent a, an anti-democratic result from all this is that the military wouldn't go along with it. Well, he just fired a secretary of defense and changed four top positions in the, in the Pentagon. And so, like, and so I want to think that this is a bit, like, I, I don't want to sound alarmist, but I don't want to, like, ignore this stuff either. So I'm just basically in a position where I'm just not sure. I really can't say definitively at this point that he's not going to try something like that, even though I will say that it's, if, if I had to bet money on it, I would still say that it's far-fetched or whatever, but uh, the odds are long, but I can't say it won't happen. Trump is just like nothing if not petty. And I think he's taking the opportunity to like just get back at a bunch of people who didn't kiss his ass enough. Could be that. Yeah, I haven't considered that. I feel like both sides, there's an incentive now to act like this is a coup or could be a coup because from Trump's point of view, like he's grifting, like he's trying to get people to donate to this fund to challenge the results which is really just a scheme to pay back his campaign debt and to like enrich himself like everything with Trump and just promote himself and keep himself in the news. And from the point of view of the Democrats, there's always been this dynamic wherein it's helpful to paint Trump as a capital F fascist because mm-hmm. that gets their side pumped and keeps people engaged for these races in Georgia, which they're going to lose anyway. But, you know, it keeps both sides like engaged to pump up the drama like this, I feel like. No, 100%. I do think it's ratings based first and foremost. I mean, it's been the game this entire time in Trump's four years here. I mean, from day one, right? This has always been the play. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it's impossible that Trump doesn't do something like a military coup, but I do think the chances are extremely low. And regarding the like the reshuffling of the Department of Defense, I'm probably going to be alone here on this one, but I honestly think that he is actually just setting up to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. He's been trying to do it for a couple of years now, and it seems like they pretty much prevented him from doing it. 
I know a lot of people think that's a crazy take, but from what I've seen, and you have to remember Trump did run on anti-interventionism in 2016. And for me, it seems like Trump might just be trying to do something to kind of like save his legacy a little bit to whatever extent he can do that. And at the same time, obviously, he's also dragging along his supporters with this talk about we're going to win still and all that to, again, like like John said, get the money coming in still to pay his campaign debts and all that stuff. Obviously, we're not going to know until it happens, but that is my prediction. And, you know, I think that's uh, that's not a bad call. I mean, I think Trump operates from a standpoint of just looking out for himself above all else and just pettiness. So, yeah, I mean, it's whether it's him thinking about his legacy or whether it's just he's just bitter because there were people in the quote unquote deep state who kept him from doing what what was his impulse to do. And he wants to get back at them. That could definitely be part of it. Yeah. And lame duck session is when is when these kinds of things, especially if you've lost, you're not going to be president, obviously, is when these kinds of moves would happen. Well, yeah. You hate to see people like that fighting with each other, Trump and just the upstanding people from the military. And yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it's um, just while we're still talking about the election itself, let's kind of touch on the actual results here for a minute. I mean, at the end of the day, this was a pretty close election. I mean, these margins were somewhat I mean, it was not as close as 2016, but I mean, especially in the Congress, losing seats in the House, not getting back to the Senate. This is not a great result for Democrats as much as they're going to try to act like it is. At the presidential level, yeah, they have these ways of slicing it to play it in their favor, right? The fact that Joe Biden carried Arizona, the fact that turnout was so high. They're um, making a lot of hay out of Georgia. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're going to they're, they're going to make it as much as possible, not just that it's a rebuke of Trump, but it's, that it's actually a positive mandate for the moderate centrist brand that Joe Biden has towed. And I don't know, I'm not talking about that he has towed in this campaign because he ran on fucking nothing. This right. Campaign. Yeah. Like really, absolutely. I, I don't think you could have run a more vacuous campaign, definitely not run it successfully in any other race. I mean, they really, and and let's just take a moment to appreciate how freaking risky that was to just run purely oppositionally with no positive policies to really, to really distinguish yourself from your opponents other than character assassination. I mean, that's what Clinton did in 2016. They just didn't want to learn. Honestly, you got to give a lot of uh, credit to the media and how good of a job they did painting Trump as the biggest villain of all time. Because, yeah, like Joe Biden did not run on any issues at a time where you would think you would run on issues more than any other time Mm -hmm. in the last hundred years. Right. Like during a pandemic, this was 100 percent about personality and character. Right. And I think the large bulk of voters voted against somebody instead of for somebody, obviously. I think a large percentage of the people that voted for Trump were voting against the Democratic establishment, the liberal elite establishment. I mean, of course, some of them really love Trump, but I think more voters than the left will tend to admit a lot of people in rural America are voting against the Democratic Party. Yeah, you know. I mean, I I want to hear a good reason as to as to why they shouldn't. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Uh, 
well, what have we been doing for them? Yeah, I mean, if you're in rural America, if, if you're a working class person, there is not a lot that is that you're going to find alike with the Democrats. You know, I think this is probably an opportunity to re-examine this, this analysis. You hear a lot. You hear it from Bernie, more or less, that if turnout is high, Democrats are always going to win. It's a little more complicated than that. I mean, we did have a high turnout, but, and it is this, and we talked about this on the show from the beginning, it's just, it is this uh, democratic strategy of banking on these, you know, middle-class suburbanites to win the election. And was it Schumer's famous quote back in 2016, we'll lose the Rust Belt, but we'll pick up a lot more people in the suburbs of Virginia. We yeah. almost lost Virginia, like Virginia was pretty close. Well, like demographically also, that makes no fucking sense. I mean, there are way more people in the Rust Belt than in the fucking suburbs. Yep. It's just not, yep. <laughs> just the math doesn't add up. And it's just an excuse to, it sort of shows his hand as being not just averse or skeptical of, of using working class politics on a strategic level, but being really ideologically against it. And in states, I mean, states where we had people like Rashida Tlaib pounding the pavement and getting those people out, it worked in Joe Biden's favor. In states where we had never Trump Republicans like John Kasich there, mm -hmm. they didn't deliver. Nope. Yeah, and North Carolina too. It's We lost North Carolina. That is one of the key parts of this uh, modern democratic strategy is that we're supposed to win states like Virginia running away. We're supposed to you know, win people in these suburbs outside of the cities in North Carolina. And um, is not really happening. I mean, if we had lost the Rust Belt again, I mean, we'd be looking at another Trump term. It's not, you know, a strategy that's working out particularly well for the Democrats. And yeah, I mean, if you run on that kind of working class campaign on working class issues, then you're expected to deliver on those things. And that's something a lot of Democrats obviously don't want to do. Um, yeah, it seems like it's not even an option for them. I mean, obviously, it's not an option for them. So the strategy comes yeah. down to basing it all on aesthetic and, and character and personality, right? I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party is just looking around for whoever they feel like they might be able to grab without shifting anywhere on the issues, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, o only a material analysis is going to reveal this to you. Who funds the campaign? That's it. That's all you right. have to look at. Who's funding the campaign? Yeah. Who, are, who do they owe for the position they have? That'll tell you every time. And these these Lincoln Project dipshits, too. I mean, it's the Republicans voted even, uh, you know, a higher percentage of them even voted for Trump this time than they did in 2016. They didn't win over like a single person. Their whole thing was that they were going to appeal to these Republicans and get them to vote against Trump. Just like, you know, money just like flushed down the toilet by these grifters who now yep. the Democrats are going to feel like they owe us something to these fucking neocons and these Republicans who shouldn't have any legitimacy in either party at this point. And still a large section of Democrats will defend the Lincoln Project tooth and nail like they want them on our side still. They think they had some sort of tangible effect and at the same time will give no credit at all or maybe they just don't know about the organizing that went down on the ground in places like Georgia and Arizona. Yeah, Trump got more of the Republican vote this time than in 2016. That's all you yep. need to know. Yep. Trump yep. got 90% of it in 2016. He got 93% of it this time. That's all you need to know. The Lincoln Project <laughs> failed, period. These are guys, who have, no political, <laughs> these are guys yeah. who have no political soul 
to embody. They are political operatives who know how to cut ads and use bombastic language and are happy to do it for whoever's paying them. And for a while, their meal ticket was the Republican Party, and they realized that it was a bit risky to start doing that kind of stuff for people with fascistic tendencies. So mm -hmm. they decided to jump ship and move over to the Democrats. And it's embarrassing how quickly the Democrats were willing to embrace them and give them credit. I mean, isn't, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I, I don't have it in front of me, but isn't one of the guys from, from the Lincoln Project, Steve Schmidt? Yeah, he's the guy yeah. who bequeathed Sarah Palin to the world. So fuck yeah. that guy and fuck <laughs> these people. Like seriously, what, what, why is there room for these people but AOC and Bernie's policies and, and all the other progressives in, in Congress, there's no room for them in, in mainstream democratic discourse. Are you kidding me? That's what's the future in terms of policy. I mean, also in strategy, it's people like Rashida Tlaib pounding the pavement in Michigan, bringing out low propensity voters, poor and working class people. This middle class white suburbanite faction, I mean, it's you know, we said it before, as long as their taxes are low, as long as they're getting what they want from Trump economically. I mean, these are the people that you know, constituted the base of, of authoritarian right wing movements in Europe, of Absolutely. literal fascism. Right. They don't care that Trump's racist. I mean, they're racist. A lot of them. No, no, they just they they I mean, there's a certain level of 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 sort of comfort and ability to sort of uh, fly above the fray with certain amount of resources that you have, that everything becomes uh, kind of a mathematical question as to what diminishes your stack of chips or not. And, the, and the, there's unfortunately a tendency, as you pointed out, for people who, who have that ability to just view political movements in the same way and not really bother with their, their policies that won't touch them because the only thing that will touch them is diminishing their sack of chips. So like doing this or that to this, to, to doing violent policies towards poor people uh, mm. of different stripes for different reasons, that's all flying below them. And if it doesn't diminish your stack of chips, it's, they, they wouldn't want their name on it, right? The, the, they'll be the ones bankrolling it without their name on anything, well, which yeah. is basically what the Lincoln Project is, what a lot of super PACs are, right? Yeah. But they, that, that's the beginning and end of how much thought is given. Yeah, yeah, and this is the problem with the blind loyalty of Democrats, right? Like Steve Schmidt, I'm seeing here, he co-founded the Lincoln Project. I mean, this is a guy that worked on the campaigns of George Bush, of Arnold Schwarzenegger, of John McCain. And he obviously feels right at home moving over to the Democratic Party. And he has a huge majority of Democratic constituents sticking up for him, protecting the Lincoln Project in general. And they never, ever once think, like, how did this guy become a part of our team? Like, why is this an yep. ideological fit? Why is this actually happening so quickly for them? I think it was on Friday or Saturday, the, like sort of towards the end of the of, of the week of the election, when it was clearly starting to break away for Biden, that Brian Williams had on his show. What's the name of that guy? The guy who used to run the RNC, Michael something, the one uh, black guy. 
Um, yeah, their one black friend. Their um, one, one black friend who ran the RNC. He was on as well as some Lincoln Project people. And Brian Williams was very overtly telling them, like, it's thanks to you guys. It's thanks to the work you did. You did really? this. Uh, yes! Oh, my God. Giving them all the undeserved praise you could imagine. Michael Steele is the guy. For their abject failure. For their joke. But you know what? You're right about them it's like we said that doesn't even matter it's the the perception of their success in those circles right in beltway yeah. circles in media circles is what matters even the majority of what the lincoln project was actually doing was ads and visual radio on tv and stuff a lot of the airtime they would buy was in dc so their audience wasn't even the american people it was the american people like when they would go on when they would go on MSNBC and stuff. But beyond that, they were signaling to candidates and other people like that. But they were looking for a yeah. meal ticket more than anything. Yeah, yep. no, their audience is donors who can fund their grift. And they're trying to, just trying to appeal to this middle-class contingent that, again, does not care that Trump is a racist, like they're racist. Like, these are some of the, like, these are some of the worst people in society. These, like, middle-class petty tyrants, small business owners. I mean, it's, and we're supposed to think that they care that Trump is like fascistic. It's like they're a fascist, you know? Mm -hmm. Like these are, these people, yeah, are not good people. And as long as they have their McMansion and they're set, which I mean, like the economy was like decent before COVID hit. I mean, it was decent for these like middle-class, upper middle-class people, like the stock market, their investments were fine. Let's like- Which is a shrinking group. Well, yeah, which is a shrinking group. As many fall beyond it, yeah. But it's, you know, one of the interesting things from 2016 was that Trump won these rural counties, but he, and poor counties, but he won the rich people within them. I mean, when you look at that, I think the results in places like uh, Michigan make sense. It's when you see everything falling apart around you and you see that the water is poison in Flint and Flint and schools aren't being invested in and like everything is just falling apart. If you're one of these middle class people, it's these upper middle class people. It's like you're worried that you're next and you just want to protect yours and, and take care of what you have. And Trump is the person you need to vote for to to get what you want. These people just have no qualms. I also think that partly explains the the percentage of the Latino vote that Trump got. I'm going to assume this was a lot of middle class Latino families that did turn out for Trump. And I was watching somebody on the Katie Halper show and he was talking about the Latino community and how Democrats have never really delivered like a big win for the latino community kind of like nothing comparable to like civil rights or anything so the latino community is essentially a bunch of free agents who could go either way and and i also saw that george bush got 40 percent of the latino vote in i believe 2000 so 2004 you know, he did even better really yeah i, well, I want to yeah, talk yeah. about that for a second because i i had uh so i i know i've been covering the election down here and it's boring now because it's all died down but covering the election in miami and i went to the biden victory rally downtown saturday around noon and by that point it was already the narrative of the latino uh vote that that trump had made inroads in the latino community was starting to be cemented. And so I was going around to people who, I'll be frank, look Latino to, uh, to, to ask right. them, yeah. like, you know, I just found the people carrying the Venezuelan and Cuban flags and stuff. I was like, hey, so uh, you got time to talk to me? And yeah, and, and no, but I, so I just put the question to them, right? And why they thought that was. And one guy gave me a, 
I thought was a very crystallizing answer, which is he mentioned WhatsApp groups, right? And how the Latino community uses WhatsApp groups for a lot of things beyond just basic texting with your friends and stuff. They organize to buy tickets for events, huge communities of like hundreds of people. I mean, the same way like the Bernie campaign, right? There was like, I mean, at least for me, I was part of the like Manhattan Bernie campaign people thing. And there were like hundreds of people on it. People would just post stuff. And there was one more smaller one for my neighborhood, et cetera. So they, they have things like that across their community for family stuff, for events, for concerts, for whatever. And that basically he was telling me that the Trump campaign infiltrated these networks and was sending a lot of memes and political messaging and propaganda through there, right? I mean, this isn't anything new in terms of WhatsApp being used as a political tool, not in the States at least, but in Brazil, it's well known. One of the main things that came out of Jair Bolsonaro's victory was how much he used WhatsApp for propaganda uh, because it's the same kind of relationship Brazilians have with the app there. And Steve Bannon was, yeah, he was working with the campaign actually and consulting for them down in Brazil. Oh, oh really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. He was working with Bolsonaro and with his shithead sons. I mean, it's just like Trump. You've always got these look, failed sons who are just, yeah, the worst. Yeah, but, but look, my point is that all this was happening on these networks and reaching people who aren't necessarily very politically involved, maybe don't even speak English, right? And definitely don't watch the news. And this is the only political messaging they get. And the Trump campaign had the sense to go there and the Biden campaign didn't. And this, is, this yeah, should exactly. be a real rebuke. This should be a real wake-up call for the Democratic Party that the material structures of campaigning that they have of just buying airtime in places and online ads and airtime on TV and on the radio and stuff and billboards that doesn't cut it man and it was the and I, I love this story because I was imagining if the Bernie campaign had been put in a similar situation it wouldn't fucking exist no way this right. wouldn't happen because not only would a paid organizer or strategist or consultant or what have you for the campaign notice this? But let's say they didn't, they would have enough of a ground game and volunteers in these communities who are knocking doors and stuff and who are with the campaign to be like, hey, I'm in these WhatsApp groups with all my friends and family and there's all these Trump memes and stuff. Do we maybe want to, they would let the campaign know. When we were in New Hampshire, John, do you remember when we were on the campaign in New Hampshire, John, one of the, one of the places that, the Concord office went to and talked to people. What was the name of the, the big dude? The dude who was just a big boy, like he was like six, two. And I don't know, as wide as like three or four me's. He was a local representative, a really nice guy. I'm forgetting his name though. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't remember. Well, he basically, basically there was a South Asian contingent in Concord. Right. And there were a couple of volunteers who had come to the office and said, Hey, do you guys want to come to my mosque? And they said, we said, of course. And Molly sent this lady who spoke, I forget what the language was, if it was Central Asian or South Asian, but she went there with this state rep to go and talk to these people about, about Bernie and his policies. And like, yeah. if you have a campaign that's that ingrained, that on the ground and has its finger on the pulse of the local communities where it's operating, you're not going to have this kind of problem where the whole where there's a huge fucking blind spot on WhatsApp where they're putting memes about you to thousands and thousands of Latinos and you have no fucking idea. It's not going to happen. Yeah, well, the Bernie campaign, actually, they had a grassroots presence and they were campaigning and would have campaigned with these kind of tactics. It's a yeah. digital strategy, but it's also a grassroots strategy, right? It's yeah, both. it's and, you know, the right is always going to have money 
And you just get some cynical people like your Steve Bannons who are going to try to use things like WhatsApp propaganda to try to trick people. I mean, it's like you need a grassroots approach on the left to combat that. But they I mean, how many times are we going to lose with more money before we realize that's not the fucking be all end all? Yeah. Hillary but it's, 2016, it's the, the, Jamie Harrison and uh, that lady in Kentucky this year. How many times are we going to lose this way? Yeah. yeah, what did they spend like 200 250 million dollars on Jamie Harrison and Amy McGrath or something like that? Embarrassing. To just totally. get blown out the water. Yeah, cuz there too, what was that money going to? It was going to It was going to, to the, fucking the, the, grifters. Yeah, it was going to <laughs> exactly. It was going to the mortgages on Fifth Homes for consultants and yep. just buying ads on the local TV and radio. That that's ugh. I ha I had no idea about the WhatsApp thing. I had no idea about the WhatsApp thing. But the only thing I saw, because I was trying to figure out the Latino thing to the shift. And there was a time where I had dug into this campaign, like Latino Dem Exit, it was called Lexit. And it was ran by this former gang member out of LA. And like, I thought it was a joke when I first stumbled upon it, but I followed it for a couple of days. And they had a live stream one day with like three or four people on it. And they were just trashing Antifa and like people knocking mm -hmm. down statues and stuff like that. And there was like 30, thousand people watching this live stream wow yeah. in the la that. area you said well the guy that started this lexit campaign yeah he's from la he was a former gang member i don't know where he lives now but that was like something that i realized was going to be a lot more effective and i had yeah. not even heard of it i didn't hear anybody else talk about it but the things they're doing on social media and apparently with this whatsapp thing as well like it's obviously effective it's obviously very effective if you're a latino and your alternative is telemundo and univision and this kind of overwrought msnbc style liberalism yeah it's easy to see how people are going to you know look for an alternative but i just want to say that the whatsapp thing it was not just in brazil but it was in bolivia too they in Bolivia, they actually uh, infiltrated whatsapp groups for police and members of the military and they used a lot of underhanded tactics. They said that, you know, people in these groups are police. They were saying, oh, it's we're not getting paid enough under Evo Morales. And they just use these specific issues to stir up these kind of people and to provoke dissent in these groups. Just this like cynical stuff. And it was a big part of the coup in Bolivia. They just they huh. infiltrated these WhatsApp groups. Yeah. And use this kind of propaganda. I just want to say beyond this is that like it maybe it's effective. Maybe it's not. But if you if the Democratic Party doesn't even have an answer like if you're not even in this field in, in in this conversation that's happening then of course it's going to be effective like if people are going to this or that kind of forum uh, what was it a facebook live stream you said was it facebook yeah yeah it was facebook yeah, yeah. A, a facebook live stream a whatsapp chat group and and all they're seeing is that with no response it's one thing if you're creating responses but you know your meme game isn't so hot or your policies that you're pitching are just not hitting them but if you're not even there then of course you're going to be losing it's just a total blind spot yeah and the biden campaign made very clear that like they didn't see the latino vote as a part of their path to victory right so chuck rocha has been all over the place talking about how he offered his talents or whatever to the Biden campaign and just never got a call back. They never reached out to him. Just absolutely nothing happened for the mm -hmm. Latino outreach. Yeah, not good. So what Trump ended up with, like Trump ended up with like 36, 38 percent of the vote, right? He did like decently well. He didn't do as well as Bush, but it's right. I mean, I saw someone on Twitter was breaking down the polling with the Latino community and there were basically three 
overarching issues that, you know, that Trump used to appeal to them. It was appealing to people in the oil industry and saying that their jobs were going to go away under Biden. It was the issue of the lockdowns and a lot of these uh, Latinos who own businesses or were precarious. The lockdowns have really hurt them and we haven't seen the support for them that we need and the kind of uh, stimulus that needs to be done to help these people. And then it was the issue of abortion. And yeah. this was a big this was a big thing under Bush too, trying to appeal on these cultural and religious issues. And in 2004, it was it seemed like half of, of the presidential campaign that year was spent talking about abortion and gay marriage. And they're going to try to use these cultural issues. I mean, you're going to find support based on these kind of things like all around. There, there are African-Americans who would vote on those kind of things. Lots of white people who would vote on those kind of issues. Yeah, and, the, uh, you know, the Republicans, as much as possible, they want to push those things and get away from like a material kind of basis for these for who these people are going to vote for. And the Democrats are just assisting them in that, obviously, because they're not helping. Yeah, the, I wrote a piece on the Italian news site a few weeks ago about a Trump event at a, an evangelical church a little outside of Miami, and that was a largely Latino evangelical church. I forget the name, but it was a, a Spanish name, and everyone was speaking English, but, you know, a lot of brown faces in the crowd. And another, I mean, uh, another thing I remember from that was the one, one of the kings of the conservative movement, Ralph Reed, was there, and he spoke and encouraged people to go door knocking. And that was an aspect that we know now Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar emphasized against the judgment of the Biden campaign and ultimately to his benefit. And the reality is that this is, the, yeah, this campaign, we, I think we've already said it, but you know, it's as good a result as you're ever going to get running a totally negative campaign. I don't mean negative in sort of tone or, or ethical sense. I mean, negative as in just like pointing to the other guy and saying he's bad and not proposing with positive, this is what I'm going to do kind of stuff. And what right. you do when you propose positive kind of stuff is you get people who want to volunteer for you and you get people who are willing to knock on doors. This might be a bridge too far, but I actually think that maybe part of why the Biden campaign de-emphasized door knocking was that they maybe could tell that there was a lot of enthusiasm for anti-Trump sentiment and not much for pro-Biden sentiment. And it's the pro-Biden sentiment that will make people knock on doors. So maybe they were thinking, well, if we ask people to knock on doors and nobody shows up, that becomes a media story in and of itself that there's no enthusiasm for this candidate. And maybe part of why they de-emphasized it was perhaps because of that. That's a decent point. But, you know, at the end of the day, I and I didn't learn about this until basically election day, but, you know, Many kudos to the progressives on the ground in, in those states that actually did organize and did lit drops and did all sorts of community outreach to turn mm. Arizona blue and like Michigan as well. They did a ton of work despite not being enthusiastic for Biden. Yeah, that, that's something I couldn't even muster up the strength to do, to be honest. I was about to say the same thing, Mike. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you, had, you had people who were enthusiastic for Rashida to live. And if you have yeah. down ballot candidates that people are actually going to work for, but it's like, what was Biden's ground game during the primaries? It's like I remember canvassing and you would see literature for Warren sometimes and like a little bit for Pete. Like, I don't remember seeing I don't remember ever seeing a Biden person canvassing or even leaving literature behind anywhere. I mean, there's just I no seeing like fucking Deval no. Patrick on a fucking door knock or something. <laughs> yeah. You know? yep. Tom Not Steyer. Biden. Tom, Tom Steyer was everywhere.
Yeah. Yeah. And Biden, you know, a guy who's in politics for 47 years. No, I I saw a, a few Bloomberg people, too, but that's just because it was, you know, he was paying them so much. I remember seeing a few Bloomberg or seeing some Bloomberg literature left behind, at least in uh, California. But no, liberals are just going to push the advantage they have with the media and through MSNBC yeah. and CNN. And all of the pushback against that, all the kind of like anti-elite sentiment goes to the Republicans. It is an anti-elite sentiment because Biden is the elite, like these media liberals yeah. and fucking Hollywood liberals, like they are a part of the elite. And you just let the Republicans take all this anti-elite in a way, grassroots sentiment. It's not a good strategy. Like it's and it's going to be yeah, and that's, worse, I think, in another how, four years. That's, that's how Trump ends up with 72 million votes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That, that's more votes than either candidate got last time. Exactly. By a lot. Yeah. By a lot. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, R Ralph Reed at that evangelical thing. I mean, the speech he went into, I swear you could have when he got into talking about door knocking. I almost expected like him to pull off like a Mission Impossible style mask with a voice thing and it turned out to be Bernie Sanders or something because he's fucking <laughs> talking about door knocking like so there's maybe like 500 of you here right if all of you go to x many doors a day there's an average of three voters per household if you go every day from now until the election the potential you could reach is like over one million voters and everything and that is something that people respond to that's yeah. not, I mean, if it had been in a different yeah. event, you could totally see Bernie Sanders or someone from that stripe of politics talking mm -hmm. that way because it's what makes sense. It's what people yeah. do when they believe in stuff. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, this election pretty much showed that you can just ignore all of that and lean entirely on the media apparatus and you'll still do OK. Yeah. Well, you know, awful. <laughs> when you're running against someone as dumb as Trump, I mean, if the yeah. candidate on the Republican side had been just, you know, slightly less ridiculous, as they probably will be in 2024, unless Trump runs again, which would be pretty funny. And it's, I did you know, see a report. I did see a report today saying <laughs> he might announce for 2024 in the next couple of weeks. It wouldn't surprise me. It's just it for the crazy. grift, though. He wouldn't want to win. Again. I know. Well, I don't think he don't, wanted yeah, to win it right. to begin with. I mean, exactly. You know, be, I mean, White House is a downgrade from Mar-a-Lago, really. But, but you know, <laughs> now he's stuck in this situation where it's like he can't lose. It's like he's hating every second of it, I think. But he doesn't like to lose. Uh, Mar-a-Lago, uh, yeah. where the stakes are kept at fifty degrees, just I mean, right. I mean, it, it's you, you can know, taste think, the gangrene. <laughs> I think he I think he enjoyed working on The Apprentice a lot more and just being surrounded by yes men and just being able oh, to sure. do his being able to do his thing. I mean, it's like and it's but it's been funny to see the limits of his power under his presidency It's like he's going to come in thinking he can like big dick China and just like screw over all these countries on the national stage, just like he screwed over his contractors that used to work for him. And it's like it didn't quite didn't quite work out that way for him. That's a good point. That's the end of part one of our interview with Mike Booth, Canvas Manager from Reno, Nevada, Bernie 2020. Um, we're going to be posting part two in just a few days. Uh, we talk about the Bernie campaign, why we think it failed, where we go from here, and uh, lots of other fun stuff. So uh, stay tuned. Subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, follow us on Spotify. It really helps us out. And uh, look us up on social media. And uh, stay tuned.